Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Public safety issues are dominating the governor's race in New York as Republican Lee Zeldin is calling for the repeal of the state's bail reform laws, while Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul tells police chiefs she supports more funding for law enforcement. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. It's been a week since Long Island Congressman Lee Zeldin thwarted a potential attacker while at a campaign event near Rochester. The accused man, David Jacobonis, like Zeldin, is a war veteran. Jacobonis also struggles with alcohol addiction and mental health issues, his lawyer has said. Jacobonis approached the candidate during his speech, wielding a plastic-pointed defense keychain. He grabbed Zeldin's arm and pulled him over before he was wrestled to the ground by AIDS. Jacobonis Gabonis later said he mistakenly believed that Zeldin was making a speech disrespecting veterans. The Monroe County District Attorney's Office charged Jacobonis with attempted second-degree assault. That's a crime that under the state's 2019 bail reform laws is no longer eligible for bail. He was subsequently released. Zeldin, who has made his opposition to bail reform a cornerstone of his campaign, says it's a prime example of why the law needs to be repealed. His words to me were, you're done, you're done, you're done. Uh, As uh, he was approaching my throat, he was charged with a, a violent felony and he was released back out onto the streets. Complicating the story, the DA, Sandra Dorley, whose office sought the charges, is a Republican and an ally of Zeldin's. She attended the rally and was listed on his campaign website as a co-chair, though she says she declined the offer to be involved with the campaign months ago after realizing it would be a conflict of interest. Federal authorities later charged Jacobonis with the crime of attacking a member of Congress with a dangerous weapon. He remains in custody after a hearing on Thursday. Zeldin's campaign released an ad highlighting the incident. A man aggressively attacks Lee Zeldin with a weapon. Only hours later, the attacker was released under New York's dangerous cashless bail program. Zeldin has found an ally in New York City Mayor Eric Adams, a Democrat. The mayor on Tuesday called for a special session of the legislature to repeal some of the bail reform laws. He says the catch-and-release approach to repeat offenders who sometimes commit violent acts after being set free without bail is harming public safety efforts and needs to stop. Albany should consider um, coming and revisiting uh, some of the violence we're seeing of repeated offenders. And we need to be clear on that. We're not talking about someone that steals an apple. Uh, We're talking about someone that has repeatedly used violence in our city Uh, robberies, grand larcenies, burglaries, shootings, carrying a gun. The proposal was rejected by the state's Democratic legislative leaders. They say there's no need for a special session. The available data has not so far directly linked changes in the state's bail laws to the increase in crime. Governor Kathy Hochul, who's seeking election to a full term and is considered the frontrunner in the race, successfully sought some changes to bail reform in the state budget. The revisions made more crimes once again 
again eligible for bail. Our changes now cover repeat offenders for property crimes, theft, etc., under the bail laws. Our bail laws also cover gun crimes that had been left out before. They now cover hate crimes that have been left out before. We also gave more discretion to judges to make determinations that they did not have before, allowing them to examine factors such as the severity of the crime, were guns involved. Hochul says the changes also closed a loophole that resulted in cases being dismissed due to technicalities, like some missing information. The governor says she's not going to call a special session because there's no consensus among Democrats on further rescinding bail reform laws. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Following passage in the U.S. Senate this week, the House voted to pass the CHIPS Act. The bill makes significant investments in the semiconductor and advanced manufacturing industry and could have a major impact in the capital region. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard reports. The $280 billion Chips and Science Act makes investments in manufacturing, research, and workforce development. It's aimed at helping make the U.S. compete overseas and address lingering supply chain issues. But supporters of the bill in Congress said there was one reason in particular they voted yes. Western Massachusetts Democrat Richard Neal chairs the Ways and Means Committee. He spoke on the House floor Thursday afternoon. This is an argument about national security. That's what this is about when everything is pushed back. We have this opportunity here to put aside the theatrical discussion, proceed with sensible, substantive legislation. New York Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand spoke just before the House vote. It's extremely um, necessary for national security, uh, for our priorities, but it also will help with the advancement of science, the advancement of health, uh, the advancement of a lot of technologies that are necessary uh, for everyday life, like cars. Included in the bill is $52 billion to support domestic semiconductor manufacturing. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer spoke with reporters on Zoom Wednesday, outlining potential impacts across the state. The Democrat has sought to make New York a national leader in semiconductor and advanced technology manufacturing. So the bottom line is every part of upstate New York is going to benefit from this large bill the most significant investment in science and manufacturing uh, in decades. And you can be sure, as majority leader, I can assure every resident of upstate, I'm going to use my clout to make sure those dollars, those jobs, that great future come to the regions of upstate New York. Global Foundries in Saratoga County is planning to build a second chip fab plant at its world headquarters in Malta, where it employs about 3,000 workers. Company president and CEO Tom Caulfield on Thursday said Global Foundries, quote, is ready to accelerate its expansion plans there with the construction of a new manufacturing facility that would create roughly 1,000 high-tech jobs and thousands more to the New York State economy and semiconductor ecosystem both during construction and after the fab comes into operation, end quote. The capital region is also home to the SUNY Poly Albany Nanotech Complex, where Schumer and other officials want to establish the first National Semiconductor Technology Center. The CHIPS Act also includes $10 billion to launch regional technology hubs to support research and development. SUNY Poly Acting President Todd Larson said the CHIPS Act could allow educational institutions to have a larger stake in working with private companies to develop next-generation technologies. And, Larson says, creating the next-gen tech is not just about design. You have to be able to prototype, you have to be able to test, 
And part of what this facility does here today and what I think we would expand upon in the future is the possibility to make available sort of um, semiconductor fab runs for researchers, right? So that ideas can really be prototyped, they can be tried. Um, and that's different, obviously, from a, for a production scale line that, you know, is for more mature technology that's going out into the marketplace. Capital Region Democratic Congressman Paul Tonko also hailed the bill's passage, calling it a game changer for the industry and the region. President Biden said this week he's ready to sign the CHIPS Act into law. It now heads to his desk. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustino. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Interesting conversation this week with Paul Wolf. He is the president of the New York Coalition for Open Government. Kind of an oxymoron when it comes to New York State politics. He acknowledged that with you. One of the things you talked about was the issue of FOIL, the Freedom of Information Law requests that you can make of your state and public officials and organizations and agencies And they released a report recently that determined, oh, shocking, Alan, 61% of 18 counties across the state complied with the law within five business days, and 28% never responded. Shocking there's no transparency going on. Right, David. Well, look, we know that businessmen and women and politicians are all guarding their own particular information. The more information that people have, the less ability that politicians and others have to control their space. And so they won't. Now, along comes this rather, I have to say it, toothless effort to enforce the fact that people should know what their government is doing. And it is, in so many ways, rather pathetic. As I said to uh, Wolf, two men standing in front of a urinal discussing business is hardly going to be the stuff of open meaningless laws. And that is very important because people do transmit information in a personal way and there's very little way of making sure that that happens. We can keep trying. Wolf and others do. Nevertheless, just imagine yourself a politician and you want to get something done. Do you bring it into a meeting if you don't have to or if you think you don't have to? The answer is, of course, no. A lot of people do. A lot of information is discussed properly. Nevertheless, we do know that people do not want to share their ability to influence things in every way possible. There's also this dichotomy, isn't there, Alan? I mean, there's the law and then there's the enforcement of the law. And like in this case, we've seen it with the Department of Environmental Conservation. You know, they pass a law to clean up brownfields, but you don't have enough people on the ground to enforce. Well, that's right. Legislators love to pass laws, love to say this is the way it should be done. Nevertheless, we do know there's a long distance between lip and cup. By the way, you asked Paul Wolf about the current governor, Kathy Hochul, and transparency after we learned that the pre-audit powers that were put 
back into the budget after Cuomo took them away from the state controller were stripped out at the very end, leaving the controller without them again. And he, Paul Wolf, didn't mince any words. He basically said, hey, she has not proven yet to me that she's transparent. Well, that's right. Look, governors have been doing this to this particular controller for quite a while now. He's an honest man. I happen to think he's the best man in state government. And the fact that the controller has blown the whistle indicates that all is not well when it comes to open government. That's for sure. Legislative Gazette Political Observer Alan Shartok. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustino. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik is in her fourth term representing northern New York's 21st district. She serves as chair of the House Republican Conference, the number three leadership position, and now characterizes herself as ultra-maga. The Republican held a telephone town hall with constituents last week, and the Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley was on the call and filed this report. Stefanik, a zealous supporter of former President Donald Trump, had said she would counter-program the January 6th committee hearings. Thursday's town hall was held an hour before the start of that hearing. She has dismissed the committee's work as a witch hunt. Stefanik began her town hall describing the issues she says are the priorities of her constituents. The number one issue that I hear facing families is skyrocketing inflation. This is the highest rate of inflation in 40 years. Recently, I introduced legislation to hold the Biden administration accountable. I want to touch on the second top issue that I'm hearing about, which is the skyrocketing cost of gas prices. These have doubled since Joe Biden took office. I'm supporting a package of bills that Republicans have put forth to unleash American energy production instead of increasing our reliance on foreign adversaries for our energy. This includes the American Energy Independence from Russia Act, which would immediately undo the Biden administration's actions that have hurt and really stopped gas production in the United States. According to Forbes, before the pandemic, the U.S. had reached an all-time high in oil production, but demand dropped during the pandemic. The article says, quote, rising oil prices in response to insufficient supplies are the predominant reason for the surge in gasoline prices, unquote. Calls to teletown halls such as this are typically screened. Every individual who spoke supported Congresswoman Stefanik. Only first names and hometowns were announced by the moderator. A recurring theme from questioners was gun rights. Jennifer from Hartford in Washington County was concerned about what she called reactionary gun control actions. I am exceptionally concerned that we are fast losing our Second Amendment rights. The mass shootings that are happening, I don't think anybody is like, you know, happy that that's happening, but the answer, and if you look at the statistics, is not more gun control. We mourn for the horrific loss of life in those 
horrible mass shootings, and it was under Republican leadership that we increased mental health funding. I am adamantly pro-Second Amendment. That is a constitutional right. It is a right not given to us by government. It is a natural right. And it's a right that I will continue to stand up for. Voting rights in the wake of the 2020 election is a concern of Corey from Canton in St. Lawrence County. He referenced 2,000 Mules, a movie spreading false voter fraud claims, and a recent Wisconsin Supreme Court ruling that determined absentee ballot drop boxes are illegal in that state. I think these other topics wouldn't be issues if the election was run constitutionally, which it obviously wasn't. So what are we doing to get to the bottom of that? We need to pass legislation to strengthen our elections. Here are some bills that I'm leading on. Number one, the Citizen Ballot Protection Act. This allows states to require voters to provide proof of citizenship. And then importantly, I co-sponsored the Save Democracy Act. It prohibits automatic voter registration. It mandates voter ID. It prohibits delivery of mail-in ballots unless requested. It prohibits drop boxes, prohibits ballot harvesting, prohibits accepting absentee ballots after the election date. We need to make sure that our elections are safe and secure and that we rebuild the faith of the American people in our election system. Stefanik voted against certifying the election results. The last caller of the evening, Stephen of Evans Mills, a village in Jefferson County, presented the congresswoman an opportunity to preview a GOP extension of the Newt Gingrich contract with America from the 90s. What is your message? What I'm recommending to the Republican Party is you write a contract with America 2023. We are doing what's called Commitment to America, which is our version of the contract. We've worked on this for over a year, and it will be a list of, for example, the Parents' Bill of Rights, the Rain and Inflation Act, you know, balancing the budget, investing in our national security, going back to the effective Secure the Border Trump policies. That will be laid out in the Commitment to America, and we're looking forward to introducing that from August through the election cycle. No questions were asked and there were no comments about the U.S. Supreme Court's recent Roe v. Wade decision, nor were there inquiries as to the Congresswoman's assessment of the January 6th committee hearings. You can listen to WAMC's recording of Congresswoman Stefanik's telephone town hall at WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. With the horse racing season underway in New York, I sat down with Patrick Batuello, founder and president of Horse Racing Wrongs, a nonprofit organization dedicated to eradicating horse racing in the U.S. Patrick begins by explaining how he came to found Horse Racing Wrongs. Well, when I was writing the animal rights blog for the Times Union, I was researching for a post on horse racing and found two things. One, there was a dearth of information out there. No one knew how many horses were dying across America, let alone the circumstances in which they were dying. 
And secondly, there was no organization, big or small, focused on this issue, speaking for these abused, exploited racehorses. So I decided without any particular background with horses or uh, just but a rudimentary knowledge of the racing industry to step into that void. And I learned about both of those as I went, and uh, it was just desperately needed. These horses needed a voice. It was what is called an orphan issue within the animal rights community, and, and we have filled that space. Again, your website is horseracingwrongs.org, and on that front page, when you read about the organization, when you click that link, you, you come to a quote that you've posted there. Facts, says the great John Adams once declared, says the quote, are stubborn things, and facts are what we present here. We firmly believe that if those coming to this site do so with an open mind, a fresh lens, they will see horse racing not for how it has been sold as sport, the sport of kings, but rather as the cruel and deadly gambling industry that it is. And you go further with that description as to, you know, the big lie on your website, picking right. up on what we've been talking about on the national political scene. Yeah. But a great way to draw people in. You say the lie, the big lie is that it's a sport. It's brilliant marketing, David. This industry has been around for over a century. In fact, Saratoga right here in our backyard proudly bills itself the oldest sporting venue in the nation. So it is marketed as sport. When I was growing up, I wasn't a huge racing fan, but I was a big sports fan. So I tuned in to watch Seattle Slough and Affirm go for the Triple Crown. I certainly knew who Secretariat was. It was presented to me as sport. It's still reported in the sports pages, at sports newscasts. Uh, NBC Sports is there covering all the Triple Crown races. So that's news anchors. Forgive me for yeah, for busting sure. in here, but news anchors, Patrick, on the local news stations, do their broadcasts from the racetrack. They do, they do. We can get to Saratoga in a moment, but just to finish that thought. So our goal here is to recondition the American public. Uh, we again have been taught from birth to think of this as a sport. It is no such thing. It is simple animal exploitation and animal cruelty, no different than dog racing, which by the end of this year, well, there'll be two dog tracks left in the entire country, and even more telling, dog racing is prohibited on moral grounds in 42 states. So we have one industry clearly on its way out, another one still protected under this banner of sport. So it is our goal to get people to reassess, look at, th look at this through a fresh lens. It's difficult because, again, we are conditioned from birth and we have to break through that mindset. But as you detail in what's wrong with horse racing, you know, if you try to substitute any horse for a human being, in this case, an athlete, let's say an Aaron Judge from the New York Yankees, the things that are happening to horses we would never allow to happen to humans. Right. And, and simply, the difference begins and ends with consent. We have consenting autonomous human beings participating in real sports, and we have horses who have no say in the matter. And they are, what, and your listeners must know, they are controlled and subjugated their entire lives from birth right, right through to the end. And it, 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 there's more than just the death on the track. It starts with the, at the beginning. They're torn from their mothers and herds as mere babies. They're rushed to the track long before their bodies are, are fully mature. A typical horse matures at six. A racehorse is thrust into intensive training at 18 months and raced at two, which we're, free, we're using a maturation chart is the rough equivalent of a first grader. And again, this is intense competition. They're not being eased in like we do with our children with Little League. Uh, I see time and again in states that give us full necropsy reports, 
four, three, two-year-old horse is dying with chronic conditions like osteoarthritis and degenerative joint disease. This is clear evidence of the incessant pounding these pubescent bodies are forced to absorb. So the cruelty starts right from the beginning. They are commodified, obviously. They're by law, deemed literal chattel. So the typical racehorse is bought and sold several times over the course of his so-called career, adding anxiety and stress as they're shuffled among different people in different barns. 90% plus of all active racehorses suffer from chronic ulcers. A clear illustration that we're t- the anxiety and stress. Maybe worst of all, even worse than the death, is the fact that these animals, these naturally social herd animals, are kept locked in tiny 12 by 12 stalls for over 23 hours a day. It is akin, uh, as Dr. Craig Kulikowski, a prominent equine veterinarian here in upstate New York, said at the New York State Senate hearing that I testified at, it's akin to keeping a child locked in the 4 by 4 closet for 23 hours a day. So these horses, these confined racehorses, exhibit the same stereotypies that we used to see with the Ringland elephants, the weaving, the swaying, the bobbing for the horses, the uh, the air-sucking, cribbing. They incessantly kick and dig and even self-mutilate. Clear, unequivocal signs of mental and emotional anguish. And that is perhaps the worst of it. And make no mistake, the horses running at Saratoga are no different than the horses running down at Aqueduct or out in western New York and Finger Lakes. No different at all. And we haven't even talked about what I think most people are familiar with when they think of the corruption in horse racing. And we just saw a very prominent owner banned because of that issue is the drugging of horses. Right. Drugging and doping is certainly a part of horse racing, but I think it gets outsized attention in the media and the public as if all we need to do is clean this thing up, and that's what the Horse Racing Integrity Act purports to do. Drugging and doping is not the main reason these horses are breaking down and dying on the racetrack. The main reason is they're bred for speed, and they're forced to do something unnatural long before their bodies are fully mature. And again, we go back to what I said about those four, three, two-year-old horses dying with chronic conditions. That's not the reason they died, mind you. They broke a leg, they snapped a neck, but in the knee crop, reports, we're seeing the effect of that incessant grinding. That's why these horses break down and not the drugging and doping as much. The drugging and doping comes into play and they try to mask injury or numb the pain to keep them on the track, certainly, and there is abuse there. But I think it gives a false idea to the public that all we need to do is clean this up like baseball with steroids and somehow racing can be made whole. Nothing could be further from the truth. He is Patrick Batuello, president and founder of Horse Racing Wrongs. You can find out more at horseracingwrongs.org. Patrick, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, David. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2230. Or just listen at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcast. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.